0: This is the Heart to Heart Foundation podcast. It will be covering a walk from the geographic centre of Australia to the centre of the nation's capital in Canberra to raise awareness of the mental health issues faced by our first responders. We ask a lot of the people in our police, emergency services and all frontline workers. That takes a big toll on them and their families, which is why this walk is happening. These are just everyday people that have to do extraordinary things. These people are just like my dad.
1: Welcome to the Heart to Heart Walk podcast. Today's episode, we have Tim Peck, the Deputy Director of the Centre of Excellence for Mental Health for Emergency Workers at Phoenix, Australia. G'day, Tim.
0: Good morning and thanks for the opportunity to chat.
1: Thanks for coming on. I'm, uh, I'm really looking forward to hearing a bit more about what you get up to down there in, uh, in the Great South. So, um, Tim, I've heard a little bit about your... Um, I suppose your storyline to becoming involved with Phoenix Australia, and and I guess probably what steered you in that direction. So, could you just give us a little bit of background about yourself, uh, you know, regarding how you ended up working for Phoenix Australia?
0: Yeah, thanks. It's uh, it's a bit of a unique story, I think, if if we look back. Uh, On paper, it sounds very good. I was a member of Victoria Police for 21 years and then in 2015 or 2016, I went across to Beyond Blue as their inaugural manager of the emergency services program, which uh, did some really great work around the the good practice framework for establishing mental health strategies within police or emergency service organisations and also heavily involved in the answering the call um, national survey that was done, which is the largest done of its kind.
1: That's been a huge report in uh, everything that we've been looking at lately, yeah.
0: Yeah, so it was really great to be involved in that, um, particularly after my policing experience. And then I moved on to, after Beyond Blue for a year, I went on to become the uh, well-being manager at the Police Association of Victoria. So TPAV, as it's known, is, uh, is the union representative body for police members in Victoria. Uh, have a, a really strong membership of, you know, I think it's about 98% of all members are part of that union. Uh, And my role there was really to assist those members who had been impacted across a whole range of issues, but it became really apparent very quickly that mental health was the driving issue of a lot of the um, problems that people were presenting with. Uh, From there, I stayed there for four and a half years, and then about 18 months ago, I commenced at Phoenix Australia. So on paper, that sounds like a nice linear (laughs) uh, pathway that, you know, decisions were made along the way, but that that's what I wanted to achieve. Um, the reality was, was quite different. Um, as I said, 21 years with VicPol uh, in October 2014, I was a detective senior sergeant working at what was called the Human Source Management Unit. Um, we were responsible for the management of high-risk informers. So, in fact, my role had come in after the, uh, the Nicola Gobbo uh, review so what was called the Source Development Unit, and that was uh, disbanded, to use a better, with, you know, there's probably a better term, but that's really what happened, and yeah. uh, a group of us were brought in to take over that role. So um, a fairly high-end and stressful role, but I'd been heavily involved in investigations for many years. Uh, of my 21 years, I think I was a detective for 14. Right. Um, and, and particularly in the later stage of my career, I think uh, between... 2009 to 2013, I went from a detective senior Connie to a detective senior sergeant, which is you know four four promotional ranks in three and a half years, which is quite um, a rapid rise given wow. the uh, the environment <laughs> we're in. So in my mind, what I was doing what I was doing was working, and and what I was doing was you know I was uh, absolutely dedicated to the role. I, I lived at 24 seven. There was very little sleep. There was a lot of alcohol. There was a lot of yeah. suppressing of um, what I now know to be symptoms of PTSD and mental health injury. But my attitude back then was just suck it up and push on. Um, you know, obviously they like the work you're doing, you're getting promoted, yeah. you're well-liked amongst your colleagues and and I was able to present a really, uh, you know, confident and professional um, image when I was at work. I could really go and, and do my job well and, and present in a way that you know, I'm sure from the outside looking in, people would think, gee, you know, he's really got his shit together, Ex- excuse the French. Yeah, yeah. Um, reality was internally I was uh, all over the shop. I, I was really struggling. I-, I couldn't understand what these dreams and thoughts and, um, you know, really intrusive sensations I was having were all about. Uh, I relied heavily on alcohol to to yeah. maintain my persona. So um, it- no doubt I was an alcoholic. I used to drink. You know, when I was on it, there would be binges. They'd be drinking every day. Um, a lot of hiding my my drinking, particularly from supervisors and colleagues. So I, I'd sort of got myself into a bit of a a bit of a bind. In that, uh, I, I did start seeing a clinician in about I think it was about twenty twelve or around there. Might have been earlier. And part of that was to deal with my alcohol issue. And I'd get off the drink for a few months. Uh, we started talking about some of the symptoms that I had, but being a uh, an investigator and a well entrenched in that culture, I wasn't telling him anything. Yeah. I, was, uh, <laughs> I, was I was, I, I yeah. was really cautious about how much I said, um, mm. and in fact, I don't think I really confided in anyone around yeah. the extent of my injury and, and how I was feeling. So whilst I was you know, doing some work on my on the alcoholism and trying, because I I really identified that as a risk that yeah. if I kept going, something was going to happen. Um, something bad for me was going to happen. So, you know, I could get off it for, you know, I think the first time I, I got off it for a month and I was so proud of myself that I'd done a month without alcohol and uh, the binge when i come back from that was just massive. It was, uh, yeah, right. it was full on. Yeah. Um, I'd extend it out to a couple of months. So I'd change my drinking patterns so I wouldn't drink at home and then I'd drink away from home um, and just create all these crazy scenarios that allowed me to continue to drink. Um, all the while, fronting up at work, uh, putting the brave face on, pulling the mask on, and and getting through each day, um, yeah. tr- trying to present that you know as I said before that pr- professional and capable, um, you know, member who could you know do anything and take anything on. So yeah. as as I approached 2014 internally, um, I was really starting to struggle with my uh, mental health. In particular, the the thoughts that I were having were really disturbing. Um, some of the sensations I was having were really disturbing. My sleep was non-existent and I was back on the drink full-time and pretty much I'd only been in that role, that detective senior sergeant role for about six months. It was about March 2014 when I first, first time I could put my finger on it, I decided that no, I I can't do this anymore. I, I can't continue to live these two lives. One of, you know, wanting to be with my family and understand what's going on with my health and take a step back and, and try and work out another way as compared to this, you know, it's nearly like it was two parts. of I me, mean, this over, overriding desire to maintain my reputation and keep my professionalism going and, and be the yeah. absolute best detective there was. So, and it's a really difficult um, concept to explain because, uh, you know, obviously my values were about, family and health and so on and you know if you ask me my four most important things it was you know my wife and my kids my physical health and my mental health and on the other side i'd you know continually tell myself you're doing a great job for the community like people respect you your yeah. your colleagues think you're great you're doing a great job how can you how can you give that up uh, just because you're not coping so yeah. i was in this real dilemma and i would reached the point where i couldn't find a way through i couldn't continue to hurt the people that i loved in the way that i was doing through my alcohol misuse and, you know, angry moods and lack of sleep and those types of things. And I also just couldn't have walked away from policing. It, it was too big of an ask for me to say that, you know, I'm, I'm not up to that and I've, I've got to take a break. That that would yeah. never have happened.
1: Yeah, it's almost like it's not an option, is it? It's sort of you get to this point and you think, <laughs> I think you convince yourself that they need you, <laughs> and, uh, oh, you know, and they can't possibly survive without you and you just keep yeah. pushing on.
0: Yeah. Absolutely, you know. And, I just just out know, of
1: interest, when you said you saw the clinician uh, back in 2012 or whenever that was, is that did you do that on the sly or did you do that through work um, systems?
0: No, on the sly, absolutely, yeah. through my GP and a referral. Yeah, um, right. Continued to see him, you know, saw him for many years, as it turned out, but uh, in the early days I told him nothing. It was more like a, um, a you know, in, a... A practice for some of the source management work that I did. You know, I'd go in and uh, try and play games. He was clearly much much smarter than I. But um, yeah, that that was how my mind was working at the time. Yeah, right. So uh, just touching on what you said before, I, I think you know I reached this this point where I, I couldn't in my mind, I, and because I was so tired and so exhausted, and you know all these other issues going on. I just wanted something to be clear. I just wanted one goal to aim for that I could that get me through. Yeah. Um, and it was first time I thought about it in March that year was about suicide, that perhaps that's the way through, that, mm. you know, I could leave the job as the hardworking detective who happened to, you know, crash his car or whatever might happen. Um, my family would be okay financially, um, you know, the... They'd get over my loss. I wouldn't hurt them anymore and so on. So me making decisions for everyone else on, on how they, how I think they should feel if yeah. that was to occur. Um, so over the next few months in 2014, that those thoughts of suicide actually became a safe place for me to go. They became a place where I could get some sort of release from the continual pain that I was in around this. Um, I don't know the best way to describe it. It's sort of guilt and shame and fear all mixed up in one. You just yeah. don't really know what, what to do. You, you're you so caught up in your own world. Um, you know, I've got a. as I said, it was like there was two parts of me continually struggling with each other that was such a, a an exhausting process to go through that the idea that there might be an end point became really attractive. Yeah. So I'd spent time thinking about that and that became a bit of a safe place for me to ease my mind and, um, to, to slow it down somewhat and, and just to allow me to have some peace. Um, over those months that, you know, when I first thought of it, I thought, oh, don't be a dick. You know, that's, you know, yeah. I'd say it was 10%, 90%, you know, 10%. Yeah, yeah, that might be an idea. 90%, no, don't be an idiot. That's yeah. shouldn't even be on the cards. As the months and as the weeks and months passed, it, it did become more real and it became a real option. Um, by August of that year, I was actively planning in that, I decided I wasn't going to do any more work that was required by the end of the year because I wouldn't be there to do it. I wouldn't be there to, you know, if I had a report that was due in December, I wasn't worried about it. I was making sure that things would be looked after at home. I was trying to um, put some plans in place about how the family would be able to manage it when I was gone. Um, And it was just after my birthday. I just turned 47 in 2014 in August. And I remember sitting at a park up in... uh, Near my home in in uh, Ivanhoe in in Melbourne, we're at Dayroom Parklands. We're looking out over the park, and I still remember it vividly. My wife saying, "I'd had a really bad week at work. I was really, you know, unwell." And you know, she's a intensive care nurse. She knew that I was oh, not right. well and was trying to get me treatment, and I was resisting. And she said to me, well, "Look, just you just need to take some time off." You've just got to have a break and and collect yourself, and we'll make a decision about what's best for you moving forward. And you know, she'd been telling me this for ages, but obviously I just ignore it. But you know, at the time, I think I had I had over three hundred sick days that were owed. You know, I had three months uh, long service leave or longer, yeah. probably probably five months long service that I've never touched. I had rest days owed, I had holidays that were owed, but a bit like you said before. I couldn't believe that the organisation would be able to continue if I wasn't there. In in my mind, I was so important that, you know, if I wasn't there, the uh, Kilda Road Crime Department would fall over. Yeah. That's probably a sign of how unwell I was, mate, like really. Um, But the the, the part of that, I didn't really reflect on that till later on, but the part of that conversation that really um, still upsets me is that, you know, I, I said to her then, well, I won't be here by Christmas, so it doesn't matter. Don't worry about it. And she says, well, what do you mean by that? I said, you know exactly what I mean. And she suspected for a while that I was um, somewhat suicidal. Right. But where, where does that leave her? Like I've painted the, my workplace as the enemy, so she can't reach out to them. Uh, I know if she reached out to my clinician, I, I simply would have denied it. I think I told her that, that if you say anything, I'm just going to deny it anyway. you yeah, right. Say I'm fine. I know what to do. Um, she did have a really good support network at her, her workplace. Um, but family and friends that was also really hard like how do you tell you know your your husband's parents that you think their son's suicidal like it's a really Mm. difficult conversation to have and then what would they do how would they react to that so I think um, you know I wasn't in my mind I was clear but I think she was hoping that I'd find my way through it wasn't like I'm going to do it right now there was still time and space and so on so for about the next month, it was really ordinary. Every time I, I didn't come home when I was meant to, which was regularly, um, I'm sure she was thinking, "Is tonight the night?" And, and so on. But I struggled along for a bit longer, and then it was the second uh, of October, 2014, at three o'clock in the morning. I um, I, I stacked a, a covert police vehicle into a parked car in Grange Road, Fairfield, and I was yeah, really? um, absolutely off my face at the time. Um, I refused to breath test and. I knew they couldn't arrest me if I refused the breath test. I'd lose my licence for two years and get a fine, but they can't actually arrest you once you refuse. Uh, I did challenge the, the poor members there. I, f- I feel horrible for them for putting them in that situation. They soon worked out who I was. Uh, I challenged them to arrest me under the mental health act if they wanted to because I was going to kill myself and I walked off Right. Uh, and left them standing, which, again, if uh, we speak of regrets, that would be at the top of my list, uh, mm. the way I treated them. That night was appalling. Um, I sent off a heap of text messages to my bosses and family and told them that was it and uh, jumped in a taxi and went into town and jumped on a train. I had no plan about where I was going other than that I had a really clear plan about what was going to happen next. And if if the car accident, the car accident initially, if that was my plan, um, uh, when they reenacted it, because it was a police accident, they they did a lot of. uh, obviously trying to establish what had happened and apparently apparently I was traveling at 22 k's an hour at the time of the accident so uh (laughs) I was gonna say you didn't get
1: too hurt in it so that that explains that yeah Yeah, right
0: courage wasn't my strong point I I had a few (laughs) I was sort of covered in blood and stuff I cut myself up a bit the car rolled and stuff I don't know how um but I remember thinking laying on the ground you know with the glass and shit on me and thinking is this it Am am I successful or not what's happened and and then realising that, oh, no, I'm still here. right wow.
1: uh,
0: It was just such a bizarre moment. And from that point, it was really like I went into a, a police operation mode. It was like I knew what to happen next and, and I'm off and I'm going to do it. Um, so into town in a taxi. And if you had been in the taxi with me, you wouldn't have convinced me otherwise. I'm sure I was that clear in my own mind about what the next step was. Right. Uh, I, I got a, a train to Warnable of all places. I, I didn't pick Warnable for any particular reason, only that I wanted to go to the country. I didn't want to be in the city where I knew anyone. I didn't really know people around that area. I'd done a few jobs down there with homicide but didn't really know anyone. So down to Warrnambool, uh, by this stage it was about 9.30 in the morning by the time I got there and uh jumped off the train and I'd planned to record my suicide note on my phone Yeah. Okay. as a as a memento and uh I went into the, knocked on the door of the pub, they weren't open, uh, went into the pub to grab a beer being a good like the uh, the alcohol <laughs> was start to kick in. I needed the topper, uh, and you know I'd switch my phone off and everything. I'd spent years tracking people on mobile phones, and yeah, that, yeah. that was one of my specialties. And you know, subconsciously or whatever it was, I I asked him to plug the phone in to make sure it had power. So, I, like uh, I know that if you do that, you can find the it's phone. Turn it as soon on. as it's got yeah. power, yeah, yeah. it's going to give it a signal. So, within about ten minutes, there was a couple of coppers walked in. Um, right. I remember initially thinking, geez, I get on the gas down here early, like it's only 9.30. <laughs> and then it dawned on me that the game was up, that uh, they knew, and um, I had to go and have a psychiatric assessment and so on. But a great friend of mine from who I'd worked with at Homicide came down and spent the night and picked me up and took me back to right. Melbourne the next day. But, um, you know, in, in many ways I'd like to say that that was the end of the, the suicidal ideation and the, the thoughts about suicide. Um, unfortunately it didn't stop for some months i was quite actively suicidal and we managed that uh, through basically yeah, daily psych sessions and yeah, i refused I to go to hospital I, I, I was determined not to be admitted yeah um, put a lot of faith in the same clinician in alex who was uh, i've been seeing for a couple of years but it was a different relationship in that for the first time i really opened up and told him that what was going on and, yeah. and why i felt the way i felt and the other, I guess, um, really significant change was that I, uh, I haven't had a drink since that day, back in wow. twenty fourteen. So yeah,
1: right.
0: that sort of big change with, uh, and the other really important part was, and I hated it. I was suspended with pay because of the, you know, the yeah. discipline matters and so. on. obviously, I had to go to court. and – Initially, I was just so frustrated that how could you how could you treat me like that after everything I've given, everything I've sacrificed, and now you just suspend me and cast me aside. In a lot of ways, I think being suspended was exactly what I needed. It gave me time. Right. It gave me space. It gave me some security because I was still getting paid to actually work out what I was going to do next, work out yeah. what my um, future might hold, and to try and get well again. And it was a, a long time I was, I was off work, I was suspended for 15 months by the time it finally came to a discipline hearing and I was—I did resign because I was going to be dismissed and yeah. I have no, no qualms with that. You can't go stacking police cars pissed and then think that that's not a, uh, you know, <laughs> that they're treating you unfairly. But ironically, I, I went to the discipline hearing with a plan of getting a reversion in rank to being a sergeant and uh, working in the welfare area to try and help people yeah, so it didn't end up okay. like I did. Um, I didn't mention I'd had a couple of other brushes with the discipline process around alcohol and driving and stuff, so there was no chance that they were keeping (laughs) me. I can give you the tip. (laughs) Um, So from there, it was really fortunate and it was just luck that I landed the job at Beyond Blue. Um, In in that 12 months or 15 months, with the help of Alex, my clinician, he encouraged me to uh, take on some study because my my mind wouldn't stop thinking about policing. I I had a head full of intelligence, I, I knew, you know, I used to have to know more about any investigation than anyone else, just so I could pick something up. Or that was only my own way of looking at the world, but that's how I worked. Um, so he, he wanted me to do something that would help clear my head a bit and give me another focus. So I did a a uh, master's in counselling and psychotherapy in that year. Okay, it took me it took me four years, and I finished it part time. But um, it really was a, a, a you know very insightful and very. Um, sneaky way I guess of getting me back in the game of starting to move on from this policing world and starting to look at life differently and uh, so when I finished at VicPol by pure chance I rang beyond blue looking for so I had to do a counselling placement I was looking for a placement to do some free counselling to get my hours up and uh, the girl I was speaking to on the phone said oh we've actually got a job here for a uh, you know, a national engagement manager for the police and emergency services program. We're looking for <laughs> someone with uh, a lived experience in mental health who's worked in the emergency services and who's got some mental health training or education. Yeah. I'm sort of thinking, well, I've got the first two covered, the, the last <laughs> one I'm working on, so it might be a chance here. And by pure fluke, I landed that role. And uh, yeah,
1: okay. it,
0: that was such a significant um, um, shift in... In my recovery, I think, in my getting back, and that was such a unique workplace. So Patrice O'Brien, who was my manager and still at Beyond Blue now, um, she really, for the first time when I went to that interview, I was really open. I told them everything that had happened, and and there was no hiding anything about my mental health that I had a plan in place about how to manage it. Yeah, this is what had happened, but this is what I've done, and I think I can add to your role, and so on and so on. And that's really how we looked at it, that it was me working in an environment where the most important thing was my mental health and looking after me and my plan, and work was all part of that, but they could cohabitate. Yeah, Um, right. Compare and contrast to my policing experience, and this is just me, like a lot of that was my own uh, view of the world, my own view of culture, that that there was no way that I would ever think that those two parts of my life could combine, that how I was, uh, how I managed my mental health condition, wouldn't ever have been able to, to impact on my work performance. Yep. Whereas at beyond blue, it was a different sort of scenario. So I spent twelve months there. You know, got to meet wonderful people, travelled all around. The, you know, I was responsible for every state in Australia, so every emergency service agency in every state plus every union. Right. So I've got a really, really good understanding of. The issues across nationally across Australia, and yeah. unfortunately, they're really common. That you can yeah. you can put a line through the top four that are all pretty pretty much the same. So, I did that for twelve months, and then an opportunity to come up to go back to the police association as a, a wellbeing manager, as I said, and um, there, there was still a real desire to give back and, and help those that were going through because I knew there was many like me. Now, uh, yeah. in hindsight, um, you know, there's many conversations I wish I if I got take myself now back 15 years there's so many conversations yeah so many conversations you could have with members that might have alleviated some of the harm that was caused so you know hindsight's a great thing but you know we just didn't talk about it it was just get on the piss and if you can't keep up bad luck
1: Someone the other day about exactly this thing about over all the years that you work, you see people just fall off the perch. So, just like as the saying goes, but you know, one day they're there, the next day they're not. And you see, and you think you don't, I don't know, like we were talking about it in the sense that you never really overthought the why or what happened. It was just like, oh yeah, that happens, they're gone. But then, I guess, in retrospect, when you look back over those years leading up to that particular person leaving, you go, oh, right, okay, now I see all of this stuff that, you know, really, I probably should have uh, seen and done something about, I guess, to a degree. Um, well, not necessarily taken on as a burden, but, you know, there's definitely definitely little observations you could have made. and. And, uh, yeah, as you said, like that you'd, you'd do things differently if you had your time again. I think knowing, knowing well, personally for me, knowing what I know now about where I've ended up, I'd love to have my time again and actually treat the people around me differently and, and also myself. But, um, yeah, it's very – it's interesting that retrospective uh, look back over <laughs> your time and what you might do differently, isn't it?
0: Yeah, yeah just I think it just really highlights that, that you know, in, in many ways the – um, the extraordinary lengths we went to to hide it. Yeah, you know, you become good at hiding an, it. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, alcohol yeah. was such a, a ready ally to, to to mask everything. You know, yeah. this, we celebrate when you win, you celebrate when you lose, you celebrate when it's a draw. It's just yeah. uh, <laughs> that, that was our our motto. But um, actually, I you think know you're exactly right. What,
1: when you were talking about your your accident, uh, I don't know whether it's the detective thing that's linked it in my head, but I do remember now back. A long time ago, very long time ago, there was a an old retired detective sergeant living in our area uh, who was really well known for driving drunk all the time. And, uh, you know, back in those days, things were done a little bit differently, but he'd had a couple of big prangs and hurt some people and it was sort of, it was a bit like, well, you know what, if you see him from now on, there's, <laughs> there's no old mate's club card to be pulled out for this one and unfortunately i was the johnny on the spot one day when he came under notice for the wrong reasons and uh yeah he actually said to me i say you're gonna you're gonna put me through aren't you young fella and i went look i'm i'm you know i've got eyes on me about this i you know (laughs) sorry uh you know and i was only young in the job at that time didn't really get it and remembering i joined in the middle of the royal police royal commission in new south wales so Uh, There there are a lot of uh, potentially, um, you know, what would you call it? Um, Integrity tests built into your day. So Mm. you didn't ever know. But he actually said to me, and I'll never forget it. He said to me, unfortunately, one day you'll get it, young fella. And I I never really knew what he meant until recently. And I've thought about that moment and gone, okay, I, I actually understand why you've ended up where you've ended up. Mm. And and uh, I've really thought a lot about that moment. And like he was fine with it. He went, yeah, you got to do what you got to do. And he knew he like he knew he'd been playing up for years. And mm. you know, but uh, just that little st- comment that he gave me, you know, one he said, unfortunately, one day you'll understand, young fella. And yeah, god damn it, he was right. <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah. Uh, oh, look, it's a horrible position. There's the last thing you want to do is to be, you know. Having to charge your own colleagues and mates oh, and so on, but that was, that, that was absolutely um, my own actions that put me in that position. And I, I really regret putting my fellow members in that in that space, but mm. uh, and they acted, you know, absolutely with full integrity. There was no, you know, very empathetic and, and wanting to help, but I was just being a dick. Mm. So you know, it, you reap what you sow. Um Yeah, so I'll just go, so I went to the association, just continuing on with that that story, and yeah. and that was a a great opportunity, and probably opened my eyes to the extent of the issue. Like, I knew I wasn't alone, but I probably didn't know how many were, were, were that close to where I was at or on that pathway. Um, yeah. and, and as I started dealing with members and, and looking at things, like I did a lot of work around workers' compensation, which was a really yeah. um, at the top of the list of most most of the issues we had. We were successful in bringing in the provisional payments model where you now get 13 weeks treatment up front, no questions yeah. asked whether your claims yeah. accepted or not. Um, you know, there, there's some debate about whether presumptive should be brought in, presumptive legislation, but I think yeah. that'll be an ongoing debate for a little while. So work cover was one of the areas where I really wanted to have an influence. And, and my own experience, I did put in a work cover claim. It wasn't accepted. But the actual systems issues of that, the the process of going through that was really demeaning and I found it really challenging. Yeah. A, because I was really unwell and and because I just didn't understand it. There's also things around superannuation and the pension and so on that I quickly learnt and became aware of and how that could be used to support members. But most importantly, I think I started to open up to members about my own experience. Yeah, And, right. and when I'm dealing with them and talking to them about what they're going through, I could relate and they sort of understood that I'd been there. So there was that that real barrier was broken down that, shit, you know, I I am in a bad way or, you know, I do need some assistance and it's okay to get help and there is a way back. So it was a real lever to be able to use to be able to say that, yeah, look, I've you know, I haven't had your experience but I've had my own and there is a way through if if we develop a plan, if we work to that plan, if we're committed to it, we can find a way through as difficult as it is and what the end point is I can't tell you but there is a way that we can, you know, find a better way of living than what we're doing at the moment. Yeah, yeah um so through that time at the association the the other project that i, I really kicked off was uh, blue hub so one one of my frustrations was that i'll be dealing with multiple members and and they'd all be looking for a psych and, and i'm not being um demeaning of uh, the eap model the Employee, employment assistance yeah. program which is available to members but the story i would often get back is that yeah i, I went and saw them or whatever and they just didn't understand my world that they, they didn't appreciate, yeah. you know, I spent three lessons explaining what a sergeant was or three sessions, you know. Um, yeah. So for me, it was really about how can we get a model where we can recommend that members go there, it's, they can get into treatment quickly. The treatments they use are evidence-based, that we know that they're using the right treatments and that the clinicians they're seeing have a, a cultural competency or an understanding of the environment yeah. that they're in to, to build that rapport and trust much more easily. And we need to collect some data on it. We need to understand who's coming in and why and, and how long they're spending in treatment and which of those evidence based treatments is actually working which which is the best outcome yeah, yeah, yeah. so so it was really looking at a model where we could you know we had a lot of people going through, but we weren't really collecting any data about what was the outcome even if they had had treatment or what led them to entering the process yeah. and then as you mentioned before the you know the experience of the person if, if they happened to leave the organization was just lost. They're, yeah. they're gone yeah. and, and no one yeah. really thinks about it anymore or reflects on it. They just move on to the next number that comes in to replace them. Yeah, that's right. So we were fortunate. We got, uh, got $2.5 off the federal government for three years to run a pilot project, which was Blue Hub. Uh, we partnered with Phoenix Australia to deliver that that project. Um, it has been the, uh, the pilot finishes, I think, on June 30 this year. It has been a... Um, a really great success. The you know I think we've got about 130 members in it at the moment. Unfortunately, we've got a significant wait waitlist, um, which we're hoping to address through funding uh, as the as it moves on to uh, business as usual. We've got a commitment from the state government through TPAV, who have done a, a wonderful job in maintaining. Yeah, right. It. Uh, so Brett Colo has uh, continued my role, and it, we they have an undertaking for a million dollars a year for four years to continue that project. So yeah. the the clinical data that we're getting from it shows that the results are you know, really outstanding. They're comparable or, or sit above any of the other programs or similar programs that have been run across Australia, yeah. uh, particularly in areas like um, Open Arms and, and areas like that. So we know we've got a really good product. We're just trying to refine that and try and get access and pathways for members to access that care. I think the other important part of it is that it's independent and confidential, so it sits away from the organisation.
1: Yeah, that's so important, isn't
0: it? Yeah, that's not to say that we don't engage heavily with the organisation. Like, yeah. like Vic Polar, an important partner in all of this, but um, sometimes there are always be a percentage of members who, by the very nature of the work that they do or the culture that they're in, simply won't access help from the organisation. No, uh, it's a step too far. So we're trying to fill that void and say, well, if, that, if you're in that group and you need access to good quality treatment, here's a here's a pathway for you. Yeah. Um, so Blue Hub, as I said, got that up and running whilst I was at uh, TPAV, and then the, uh, the opportunity came up to go over to Phoenix and, and assist them with the Centre of Excellence for Mental Health for Emergency Workers yeah, uh, right. as well as Blue Hub. So I still have a finger in the pie at Blue Hub from a, yeah. a different perspective on the other side.
1: I tell you, just from my perspective in New South Wales, I looked up the Blue Hub. There's so much stuff that's going on in Victoria that the other states could model off. Yeah, I, I don't know what it is about Victoria, and particularly VicPoll. not not um, probably, I, I haven't really looked into the other agencies' supports there, but VicPol itself with Blue Hub and PVV and a few other bits and pieces that are, you know, it looks like they've got so much activity going on for the right reasons in the right space, looking after particularly former members that a lot of the other states and territories aren't even considering. But the Blue Hub model, man, when I looked at that website and actually understood it, what a fantastic thing. And and what you mentioned about that cultural competency piece, that's something that's really irked me um, in the system in New South Wales that I've been in, like literally having to try and find my own people. And, you know, as you said, like not not all – uh, and i've heard i've heard people i've heard medical people talk about you know the the fact that it, you know emergency services and military people and that have to recognize that you know they've had a specialized career in a particular field and then it's you know when you need help it's time to acknowledge that someone else has got training and experience in a different field that you haven't i e psychology psychiatry that um you know can lend assistance to you but that what you that term cultural competence is such a big um, – it, it can be a barrier or or, a, or an inroad, I think, if it's done right or wrong because it, it – it, like, oh, man, I've had some horrendous experiences with people that just don't get it. And you walk out of those sessions so frustrated uh, because, as you said, you've spent your whole time in there. Finally, you got in the room with someone and you spent the whole time with just sitting in there going, they don't get me. Mm-hmm. and and that's not helpful at all and and i think some of the us states they've actually there's a us model um that i've heard of where um there there is exactly this sort of certification process for psychologists to go and do you know le- learn about their clients and their workplace and and the the quirks and habits and cultures from it and then use that then uh to better arm them i guess to engage those particular clients but uh, it's great to see that you know you've focused on it down in Victoria, and and you know we're we're actively at the moment talking to some of the insurers about you know how how can you better better place help and support for people like me uh, by looking at that aspect of of uh, care delivery. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So just to follow on on that, the it, look, Blue Hub has uh, you know there's a dedicated clinician at Phoenix. But we have about 60 clinicians in either hospitals or what we call hubs. So, you know, places like the Austin Hospital or Epworth Private, um, and also private clinicians. But all those clinicians have to do the cultural competency training. They have to do online courses in the evidence based treatments. They have to show that they're competent in those areas uh, before we refer clients to them. So, it's not as strong as what you said. It's not like a certification, but it's certainly. part of Phoenix's role is to make sure that the, the service delivery is at that really high standard and the quality yep. assurance is is really looked after. Um, the, the second part, the, the Centre of Excellence, I'll just quickly touch on that, That's that the marketing name for that is Responder Assist. Um, if you have a look at the website yep. for that, it's uh, available. And that covers seven emergency service agencies in Victoria. And we've, we've got a very similar model in that we've got part of Responder Assist is looking at um, a clinical pathway for those with significant trauma-related injury. One of the benefits of Responder Assist is that it's also available to veterans. So we do have a number of police veterans and and others in that model at the moment. Um, We're coming up for refunding in, we should know by May, as to whether we get refunded. The the program finishes on the 30th of June, but we're hopeful. But as you know, things are fiscally fairly difficult at the moment across a range of areas. Um, But the, the other part, or there's three real parts, there's a research component, but the other part is really about um, training and education for clinicians. So, you know, we run communities of practice for commissions for communities of practice for clinicians who are dealing with emergency workers across the state. Any emergency service, any clinician who is seeing an emergency service worker in Victoria, can access our training
1: right. and,
0: and be able to do these cultural competency training courses and the the other courses that we have available free of charge. And we're you know we're really trying to build that knowledge and experience base. Understanding there's only, you know, there's limitations on how many people can actually access that really high end treatment and how many people actually need that really high end treatment. There is a step down, but that's the area we're really focusing on to try and improve the knowledge and understanding and competency of those clinicians to deliver a better service to emergency service workers more broadly. Um, You know, we've got a a panel set up, a, a specialist panel that if they've got any questions at all, they can ring through and there's a psychiatrist or a psychologist or a social worker or a GP, whatever they might need to provide advice and guidance on who they're dealing with.
1: Wow. Um,
0: they, they can always refer someone into our assessment team to have a an independent assessment of where they think they're at with the client, and then if need be, we can take them on for, for treatment if required. So huh. that uh, hasn't been marketed extensively simply because of the funding envelope.
1: Yeah, um, okay. We
0: didn't, want, we didn't yeah. want to end up with, you know, a heap of people in treatment, and then June 30 say, sorry, we're not funded anymore. So we've just been working through that process. But the model is very similar in that we we do need to bring uh, more expertise and, and experience to those clinicians across the board so they have a better understanding. And rather than replicate or duplicate what the agencies are doing, we're really trying to fill the gaps. We're trying to provide to complement what they've already got in their resourcing yeah. pool. So that really high end treatment, the you know, the, the, the very specific PTSD trauma related treatment yeah. is something that we can offer and we can do that through the model that we have. Most EAP and internal clinicians don't have the time or the resources to be able to to no. do that type of work. So we're happy to take that on and you know under work cover or a mental health treatment care plan, whatever the case may be. So right. it's been a, a really great project for me personally, and I get to work with the seven agencies really closely and understand their their different yeah. challenges and and how the the different aspects of Responder assist can suit them. And, and I think the the last part that we we're sort of we've just done a little marketing campaign around this, but as a centre of excellence, we're looking at the yeah the pointy end, the clinical end, if you like. We're looking at improving um, clinicians' experience and expertise. We're we're developing some training. We've got a a research arm that's looking at the experience of members going through and clinicians using the system and so on. But the other part is how do we you know, start to understand why so many people are coming forward? I, I know you mentioned before that Big Pole has great resources. They also have a, ve- a very uh, high and increasing number of members um, taking time off because of mental health injury. Yeah. So it, whilst they have the resources, we're still, I think, missing this front end pit. Like well, yeah. Why, yeah, are we, why are so many people getting injured? And you know, our little marketing campaign is pretty simple but it it's called Ready to Respond. But what, it, what it's really about is members' understanding they've entered a high-risk industry, that yeah. it's their choice to do that work, that you make a decision like I did to enter policing. I made a decision to go into the highest-risk areas of policing. Equally, I made a decision to ignore my mental health. Yeah. I made a decision to absolutely do everything I could to make sure that nobody knew about a mental health condition that I had. Yeah. Um, It's most emergency, I'd say all emergency service workers are very familiar with the idea of risk assessment. And if you were to weigh up the risk of you being injured in the workplace, mental health would have to be at the top.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. What are we doing to to mitigate that risk as an individual? You know, we can wait for the organisation to train us or do whatever, but ultimately that's up to the individual. The, um, The great example I use is, you know, we used to have to do what they called OS training, so firearms training, every six months, yep. and it was actually a mandatory exam before we did it. We, we had to do it, um, do our training and so on. Now the odds of me ever having to pull out a firearm, are probably what 0.01 yeah, percent.
1: Pretty small. Probably, yeah. If you
0: have a look, they're pretty, and that's not that's not dismissing the risk. If you know what I mean, yeah. I could understand fully that we needed that training, and you, you have to have it if you're going to put yourself in that high risk environment of carrying a firearm. But you can apply that to mental health. We're putting ourselves in a really high risk environment from mental health injury.
1: Yeah.
0: But let alone doing anything every six months, we're not doing anything at all in many yeah. cases. So, what can an individual do to develop their own plan to manage their mental health? What are the things that they can do themselves? So, you know, things around sleep and diet and exercise are all the decision of the member. You know, the yeah. organization can say what they like, but that's you're the one waking up every morning and deciding whether you're going to do. Whether you're going to exercise or what you're going to do for the day or what you're going to put in your mouth. It's absolutely up to you. Um, granted, it's more difficult in, the, in a, an environment where you're working shift work and, and sometimes you have to work at short yeah. notice and all those types of things. But that just adds to the need to be flexible and have a plan that'll work. It's yeah. about understanding your pathways to care. So if you are, if you do feel like you're impacted with a mental health injury, where are you going to go to get help? Don't wait till you're in crisis and then think, shit, what am I going to do now? Yeah. We, we need to have planned ahead before then. The uh, One of my favourite quotes is, not because I made it up myself, but we don't want our first conversation about mental health to be when we're in crisis.
1: No, that's right. But,
0: but invariably that's what happens. We wait yeah. till someone falls over and then say, oh, shit, mate, we better get you off to the side.
1: participated in a uh phoenix program for fire rescue new south wales their solar program and um i recently had a chat with some of them about it uh, about the actual uh app as a product that they'd produced and that was one of the things that i said to them quite openly i said like i'd probably looking back over my time in both the cops and the fire brigade um wished i had have acknowledged just how uh, how that element of that job was going to take uh, a toll or have an impact on me and actually acknowledge it and address it before that choice got taken away from me. And and this is what I was trying to explain to them is I, I, I just wish I had have understood this concept of if I don't help myself, it, it'll take that choice away from me and impose it on me at some stage. And then I will lose everything that I'm trying to protect. Which is what Mm -hmm. happened, you know, that's ultimately what happened is, you know, I pushed it as hard as I could for as long as I could. I hit it, I did what I could, and then it got to that point in time where all of those choices were taken away from me um, because I didn't take those steps beforehand to look after myself. And, uh, yeah, it's sort of, it's, yeah, it'll happen. It'll it'll get you. Yeah,
0: and I think that the other way of looking at it is that you know, we can't prevent trauma-related injury. We, we can't no. prevent people having to turn out to difficult jobs and so on. But in my view, if we have a plan and we're clear on that, we can we can reduce the impact of that injury. We can have yeah. a great, much greater understanding of how to manage it and how to um, support people through that process if they're willing to engage and be part of that process.
1: Yeah.
0: So. It's not always about, you know, I'm not trying to step away from the important role that organisations play. There's no doubt that they, you know, they have to provide a safe workplace, they should be providing resources and so on. But equally, we've got this group that that just won't engage or don't think that that's for them. And that's fine if you make that choice, but what is your plan? Who are your support people? It might be friends, it might be family, it might be colleagues, but have the conversation with them before you hit crisis. Yeah. So tell them that, you know, I'm in a high-risk occupation that, you know, it, particularly the great examples of, you know, your partner or, your, in my case, my wife, or in, you know, depending on your relationship. But, you know, I was hosting a thing with some fireys the other day and uh, one of the fireys mentioned that, you know, this is all well and good for us, you're supporting us. What about our, our poor partners that have to sit at home yeah. and see us get home and collapse in the couch and drink half a dozen cans and ignore them for the night?
1: Yeah.
0: I said, well, what conversation have you had with your wife? Does she know why you're behaving like that? Does she understand that that's probably because you've had a really bad day?
1: Yeah. Have
0: you had that conversation with her? Or does she think you're just coming home being a grump and a pain in the ass? Yeah. And the, and the conflict actually ends up being between the way that you're behaving rather than the, the reasons for that behavior. So if we're not going to be open and, and, and you know, speak to it, I'm not saying we have to tell our, our loved ones about all the terrible things we see or the, you know, the intricate details of the role you play. Yeah. But bring, bringing them on board as part of your team saying, yeah, I'm in a high-risk industry and I'm going to need your support sometimes and some days if I come home, I apologise. If I come home and I sit on the couch and I just want a beer, that's the best I can do that day. Yeah. That, that's that's going to get me through that day. I understand it's not every day, yeah. but cut me some slack, that, that might that might might happen. Depending on the relationship, it might be the wife saying, well, when you do that, I'm going to give you a kick in the ass and say, well, yeah. this isn't going to resolve it. <laughs> let's, let's keep moving. Get, a, get but, on
1: with something else. Yeah,
0: yeah that, that's the whole thing. But, yeah. So the, the first part of this is really about having a plan and, and spending mm. some time around what is your plan? What are your pathways to care? Who are those people in your support group that are going to help you? And then it's knowing when to take action and and, and activate that plan. So yeah. that's the hard part for me in that it's easy to say, I'll just get through to the weekend or I'll just get through to my next little leave. I'll just push on. I'll get there. It'll be all right. I'll look after the family then. Yeah. I'll convince myself. and. What really happens is we become more and more unwell and then we do get to leave and we're so exhausted and messed up that we, we don't spend any quality time with the family anyway because we're just yeah. rooted basically. <laughs> so it it really is about knowing when to activate that plan and my favourite phrase is, comes from a, a psychologist from Canada who came out and taught us the human source training. At, we did a really high-level course on that and he used to say to me, when I'm dealing with an informer in a conversation, he said, know what you do when you do what you do. So if you're going to apply a technique or, or use something, know what you're doing. Don't just start throwing things out and hope that something will work. Yeah. Understand what you're doing, see if it works, and have a plan around how that's going to work. So I apply that to my own plan at the moment. So if, if, if I've had a really terrible day and, and all I can do, all I can do is sit on the couch and, and shut down for a couple of hours, That's okay as long as I acknowledge, as long as I know what I'm doing, as long as I said to the wife, look, I'm just not having a great day, I just need some time. Yeah, right. That's not the end of the world. It's not the ideal way to react. I'd love to be able to say I can have an open conversation with the wife and and feel better and go for a run and do whatever. Yeah. But sometimes that's beyond me. Um, There's a phrase by a guy called George Bonanno out of the US who's just recently wrote a book, The, The New Face of Trauma, and he talks about coping ugly, which is sometimes all we can muster. Sometimes yeah, yeah. sitting on the couch having a beer is about all we can do after a yeah. really difficult shift. Yeah. But the 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 important part of all that is that if you if you know what you do when you do what you do and you understand you're coping ugly that day, it's important that you can't cope ugly every day.
1: Yeah, yeah, right.
0: So so what happened in my case? I coped ugly for 20 years and look where it got me. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> it, it really is about understanding that. Whatever you're doing, you really need to take that time and think about: Is what I'm doing? I've made a choice. This is what I'm going to do. Is that going to work long term, or is there something else I could do when I'm next in this situation? Yeah. And that brings us around to the, the last part of the plan, which is you know re- around reflect and review. That you know we've really got to sit down and, and you know it's my take on PTSD is uh, pause, try something different, just take a step in time to think about: Is what I'm doing working? Yeah. is is how i'm reacting working is it working for my relationships is it working for my own health is it working for the work environment um i need to take a step and just review how i'm going if it's not working what do i need, what other parts of my plan do i need to adjust or or do something with or who else do i need to bring in that will allow it to work yeah we know that our plan's going to change over time the the things you do when you're twenty five are different to what you do when you're fifty when you've got kids and you're you know you're working in a So my example, I had young kids. I was at the homicide squad. I was away all the time. Like a plan around my mental health then is really different to what my plan would look like now where I I work eight to four every day. So you have to adjust and um, move with your life stages when you're thinking about that plan. It's not set and forget. Yeah. It's it's, It's really about everyday attention. It's having that capacity every day to spend some time thinking about well, what am I doing today? Is that in line with my plan and is my plan working? Yeah. So it's it's trying to create some awareness around this front end that there's, there's some risks involved with emergency service work or policing. We can mitigate some of those risks by developing a plan and, and resources that we can use, and that may include workplace resources. Don't get me wrong. They're, they're there to use. If that's what suits your personal
1: yeah, need, yeah. Yeah.
0: go for it. If it doesn't, don't just sit back and say, well, they didn't look after me and they broke me. What else are you going to do? Because uh, there's no winners once you become unwell, as you know. So it really is about having that plan, knowing when to activate it, and then review it.
1: Yeah. yeah. And actually, what (laughs) it's funny, I was only reading a report about myself. It's it's always really tricky when you read these uh, (laughs) medical reports about yourself. It's pretty confronting. But one of the things that's in a few of them for me is just how much more difficult it is to treat this condition when it's been uh, suppressed and ignored. And, uh, those poor coping strategies have been so well entrenched in your living, your lifestyle for so long, it just makes your prospects so much more bleak about the other end. And, Mm -hmm. and if you actually address this stuff and, and deal with it, you know, when it presents and when it becomes a problem, or if you see those stress cracks initially, if you start getting onto these things early, your prospects are so much better, and you know, I didn't realize the damage I was doing to myself by doing what you know so many other people do. But I didn't realize the implications of of that. Uh, you know, you think you you think you're toughing it out, and you you think you're being what they want and what your family want and what the community expects of you, and all these sort of things, all these justifications you give yourself. But what it's the damage it's doing to you for the long term is uh, is not good, and um, yeah, it's a, it's a it's a bit it's a bit a bit alarming when you're reading it in a report. Yeah, it's going, um, Damn it. it!
0: It's a really interesting point because I often wonder, you know, how we perceive ourselves in the workplace when we run well and we think we're doing a great job for the community yeah. and we're doing, you know, with, without us it won't survive. And then you think back about how well was I actually functioning? Yeah, was yeah. I was I really any good at what I was doing in that state? Yeah, that's um, right. But but you don't have that clarity to look at it in that way when you're in crisis. Like when yeah. you're just getting through each day, mate, yeah. you know, every every bit of your energy is just surviving, not exactly. not thinking about yeah. reflecting or reviewing or, or any of those things. It's just getting through to another day, yeah. um, which is a real challenge. So and you just got to make sure your
1: shirt's ironed really well and presented nice and crisply with it. the starch, so no one can see past that
0: skin. <laughs> that's it. That's it. Um, yeah. Interesting, again, what, what you're talking about. Some of the data out of Beyond Blue, or not, oh, sorry, out of Blue Hub, I won't go into the specific stats, but yeah. generally what we can say is those that reach out earlier in their career and those that have had uh, less time where they've been symptomatic. So what I mean by that yeah. is quite often when people present will say, well, how long have you been experiencing this? In my case, it would have been five years at least, you know, yeah. sleep, uh, alcohol, all those things. So... That the, the less time that you've been symptomatic and the less time you've been in the job, we're showing we get much better outcomes.
1: Better outcomes, yes.
0: So, so people who come forward earlier basically and acknowledge that they're, they're struggling, we get better outcomes. People are much harder to treat when the symptoms have been there, as you pointed out, for an extended period yeah. of time, and they've had that you know big library of um, critical incidents and, and trauma-related things that have been you know, ticking away for so long yeah. um, that the outcomes, it's just much harder to get people back or, or, or get them functioning again yeah. the longer that goes on.
1: Yeah, and I think the, the, a lot of that sort of research that I've been looking at lately about the compounding factors of w- chronic workplace stress and sort of when you're hitting that knocker of burnout, you know, you're operating right at your capacity constantly and, you know, you're literally on the knocker of burnout, how much that erodes your ability to be resilient to those other stress events or those big events that happen, and that's life in the emergency services. They're going to happen from time to time, Uh, but just how much that takes away from your ability to cope with those bigger events when when you're actually operating to that capacity limit all the time. Yeah,
0: I I think there's a really... You know, there's that notion of, you know, my bucket is full. We hear that yeah. talked yeah. about a lot. And I don't really buy into that theory that, it, you know, there's a magic number of critical incidents you go to that went, then we say, right, now you're really at risk. Yep. For me, it's more about what you're talking about. So if we looked at a mental health continuum from green, yellow, orange, red, if if in the workplace you are just getting by each day because you're so under the pump, because there's yeah. so many, you know, what I call organizational factors, whether that be yeah. workload or hours or whatever it might be.
1: Management. <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah, yeah. You're you're yeah. in the orange or the red most of the time. Yeah. Log, logic would suggest that when a critical incident comes in, it's gonna have a greater impact. Yeah. yeah. Than if you're at the other end of the spectrum or other end of the continuum where you're you know, you're feeling good, you've uh, you're up and about, works really good, you are enjoying it. And with all of those phases in our career where, you know, it's just the greatest job ever. Yeah. You know, Love what we were yeah. doing. It was um you know, the workload wasn't so great, but you're getting great results and all those, you know, really positive work environments. Yeah, yeah. When something significant happens, you are much more able to put that into context and cope with that yep. than if you're at the other end of the continuum. So it, it sort of ties back into what I'm saying about having a, to give us our chance, the greatest chance of staying in the green, so to speak, we need to have a plan.
1: Yeah.
0: So, so it ties back to what I was saying, that if we have that plan, if we're doing that every day, when those things come in, hopefully they won't impact us as much. Yeah. Um, the, the danger becomes, as you say, when you're just rolling through every day and and, and getting to that point where you're almost a breaking point without the trauma related stuff occurring. Yeah, and then it's like the floodgates open that you know one thing rolls into another, and the next thing you've got a whole library yeah. of things that are troubling you. So yeah, I, I, I'm just yeah, I think the emphasis on yeah really starting to ask members to take be a bit more accountable about their own mental health. That yep. you know, it's a it's a shared responsibility. The organisation yeah. needs to do some work, but equally, if you're making a choice to go into that organisation, that there's some work for you to do as well.
1: Yeah, and I guess you know we talked a bit about risk management, and you know how that's you know when you apply that philosophy to the emergency services and policing worlds. Obviously, that's a big factor, but one of the one of the elements of of risk management is the actual workers responsibilities and you know um it, as you said like the the workplace has a lot to do with it um, but yeah there's definitely there's definitely personal responsibility and accountability in the space too i get it and
0: it's really ironic in emergency service work because one of the of all the reports i've read one of the things that comes out we need to you know our managers are no good at managing this stuff yeah well Managers are the product of their environment. They all yeah. come nowhere, nowhere <laughs> yeah. more than emergency workers. The D- uh, managers come from the ground up; that's like they're right. all promoted through. So, if we can start to shift some of that thinking for managers to be looking at mental health in a different way, to be yeah. you know really acknowledging that um, there is no cookie cutter. All right, so if they get injured, I send him to EAP. Well, that, yeah. they may never engage, or I'll send them off to police cycle. I might want to do that. Um, yeah. That it. it by actually engaging with your staff and understanding what their pressure points are and giving them some advice, well, here's some other things you could try, whether it be responder or assist or blue hub or whatever it might be.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, you know, I think getting them more engaged, speaking openly about their own plan to manage their mental yeah. health. That we can yeah, start to shift step. some of that
1: yeah.
0: shift some of that culture. But, you know, it's it's a bit rich to just go and say the managers are all crap. We'll train them. Well the yeah. next group of managers are coming through. We need to get something that goes across the whole the whole yeah. range of people in the organisations.
1: And your managers aren't going to be very effective looking after their troops when they're hitting their rev limiters themselves. And this is the that's absolutely the other, that's the other problem. I yeah. think is the um, how well are your actual managers travelling half the time? Yeah. Hey, we've uh, we've had a good chat. I've uh, I've enjoyed learning a bit more about Phoenix and Blue Hub and yeah um per, your personal journey toward uh what took you into those roles it's been that's a that's an interesting story in itself but yeah definitely definitely interested to um to look more into blue hub and some of those some of those concepts i guess that are that i know are, are absent in other jurisdictions it'd be really good to see some of those things and actually going back i i <laughs> Did I did remember uh what you were saying about the EAP side of things from the organization sometimes isn't quite uh fit for purpose if you call it that. But I, I do remember being sent to this poor psychologist uh who was obviously the lowest bidder for the uh for the tender that was put out by the organization. And man, I, I walked out of that thing feeling sorry for him. And um I'm glad you're doing what you're doing because um, I'm sure that's still going on
0: <laughs> yeah I think you know that it is a problem that requires um you know one of the things I talked about initially when I was in this role is that if you look at you know emergency service work and and mental health and so on everyone's represented except for the member yeah so so we have you know the workers' comp systems are, are talking about what they need to do. The organisations talking about how they're going to manage things and return to work. We have the clinical areas, you know, EAP and psychologist groups talking about how the best way to treat people is. Um, you know, in my case, it was the court process telling me that this is what had to happen, or the discipline process. But as an individual, as as the the person at the centre of all that, I had no voice.
1: No voice. No one yeah. was
0: listening. No one was listening to what was difficult for me. Well, why didn't workers' comp work? Why didn't, you know, why did I find it so hard to go to a clinician and actually have some trust and, and, you know, speak openly because of those really ingrained um, issues around confidentiality and, you know, they're going to stitch you up if you put your hand up and all this type of thing. So I think um, part of what we're trying to do now is really build that these models that we're developing with from the lens of the end user, from the, the lens of the person that's most impacted by it, which is the member. Yeah. So the more we can learn about that, the more we can understand what, you know, what, what modalities actually work. Yeah. What what is it about workers' comp that's so difficult? How can we get the organisations on board to provide better supports? So, it's um yeah, it'll be an evolving process. It's not going to uh, resolve in the next day.
1: I was going to say too, uh, talking about that cultural competence or even cultural awareness piece. It's pretty. Uh, uh, I don't know whether it's the same in Victoria but in New South Wales the workers compensation side of things when when your agency flicks you over into that workers comp pipeline your very first point of contact is a person operating with a protected identity and, and I found that quite confronting you know mm. coming from the policing world is here I am being handed over to someone I call a case manager which is a an insurance assessor for a, an insurance company but the the pure fact that they operate under a first name basis only on email and all communications with you, just like just like people from AZO, just like people in, you know, in funky squads as I call them, um, you know, to to operate under a like a protected identity, uh, I found that quite confronting. And and I don't like as you said, we we're just talking about the, the person, the injured person isn't the center of the actual the piece here, which it needs mm. to be, is. You know, little there's little things like that that are built into this workers' compensation system that I think set it up on that just on that footing right at the very start. That you know, you're not treated you're not treated well, and and the, and the inferences that are built into the system that you know we're asking you the questions now, and and uh, you know the, the and I I just find that whole thing about you know dealing with these people this first name dot last initial. At at whatever insurance company mm. they're from, and I went, wow! How come? Like, here, I've spent all these years having to tell proper criminals my full name, living in the same town as them, time and time again, and here I am being dealt with with hostility from the outset from these yeah. people because they, you know, they've got to operate under a protected yeah, identity, I, and I'm I like, think, wow! Yeah, oh, it's
0: just so any wrong. Model, I think any model where you're required to prove your injury and justify your injury. Yeah, um, look I think the, the, the rates of acceptance for PTSD in Blue Hub are about ninety five percent or something. Right. Because um part of Blue Hub within ten days you get the GP and the insurer get a report from your psychologist telling them what the issue is right. and what the what the treatment plan is. So that that's just a way of getting around the workers' comp system in that you know ultimately if a member's diagnosed with PTSD and They've been to a critical incident and they nominate that critical incident as the cause. There's no insurance company in the world that can knock that claim back. It's yeah. their experience. that that's, yeah. that's what they're saying's happened. Now, you can go back and say, well, oh, they were all right the day after, or they didn't, you know, do this yeah, or yeah, do yeah. that, but it means nothing. The the yeah. reality is that from a purely insurance perspective, they've got a valid claim. They, they've yeah. got a they've got an injury, you don't get PTSD from a marriage breakdown, you don't get PTSD yeah. from you know, bullying or whatever, if, if it's post-traumatic stress disorder and it's been diagnosed and you've been to critical incidents, um, yeah. you know, it's, it's a walk-up start. So I think that, you know, we're, we're really trying to engage with WorkSafe and Victoria who are in a world of hurt. monetary like they've, They've basically openly said the government said the system's broken, it's not working. Yeah, actually so, I actually
1: saw something in the news just recently about, yeah, yeah they're going to have to start so, so limiting yeah. some of it.
0: Yeah. yeah, so just trying to find better solutions with them um, around some of this, so.
1: Yeah. yeah right. Yeah, well, I don't. Yeah, sadly, it's not just Victoria that's broken. It's I think every every state every and territory state, in the country yeah. is um has got the same sort of similar feedback through. Uh, yeah, well, uh, well, beyond Blue Research, you know, it outlined mm. how damaging it is across the board. Unfortunately, not not much has been done about fixing it since two thousand and eighteen. But anyway, um, ah, uh, well. Thank you very much for coming on, and uh,
0: it's all right. It's a pleasure
1: telling telling us a bit about your world, and uh, yeah, what what's happening down in the in the Great Southlands.
0: Well, I hope you're uh, you're going to get out on that walk for a couple of days, mate. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. I'm uh,
1: I'm planning to be out there for the majority of it, but I'm yeah, cool. I'm actually only going to be walking probably the first month because. Uh, I can't get this van the the little caravan that I do the recordings in I can't get it up the urada track uh, uh, right. yeah it's gonna to be too rough for it, so i'm gonna leave it down south and then when I walk down to that point then I'll probably oh hopefully i i'm I'm sort of looking forward to it from a storytelling point of view because we 'cause we're gonna be having different people joining the walk at different times and going to mm-hmm. little towns and talking to the emergency services in the little towns and stuff and yeah i'm I'm sort of looking forward to it just as a little um yeah, storytelling, story capture, sort of little journey of of you know, everyone's got everyone's got a story to tell and uh, yeah, yeah, capture as yeah. many as I can on the way. I yeah,
0: think I'm going to cool. um, think am going to join you up in when you get to Mildura. Mildura, um, yeah, yeah, right, yeah. And yeah, cool. uh, that I'll be able to introduce you so, to some characters up there that will tell you some great <laughs> stories. So um, yeah, yeah, there'll be
1: some characters on this on this journey. I think yeah, there's no doubt about that. Yeah. Uh, look hey th- thanks very much for your time and one thing I've got to ask you too yeah, have you got a song that I can add to the playlist I ask everyone that comes on for a song a favourite song that uh, goes on our little walk playlist for uh, people people trudging along
0: only because it's I've been listening to it recently uh, Brother by Matt Corby
1: oh man I love that song that's yeah. cool yeah good one I got to see Matt Corby in concert actually. It was it was oh, real. Did cool. you? Yeah, he was My a sideline act. <laughs> yeah, right. He was he was a side act for Bernard Fanning or someone that I wanted yeah. to go and see and then I think I enjoyed his bit, bit more than the other one.
0: Anyway, yeah, yeah he's cool. So put on the uh, the triple J version, right? Have a look at it actually, the like version. Have okay. a look at his have a look at his version of brother on that. It's um it's fantastic.
1: Yeah, cool. All right, I'll add it. Good man. No worries. All right, thanks again for your time.
0: Thanks, Matt. Great meeting you. You've been listening to the Heart to Heart Foundation podcast. People on their own journey for the awareness of mental health in our first responders. Thanks for listening and please remember to support
1: our foundation by going to the webpage at www.hearttoheartwalk.org. That's www.heart2heartwalk.org or just Google
0: it.